Jesus once asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And I would submit to you that there's really no question uh, that is more important than that, than who is Jesus. Uh, because, as the Bible makes clear, if we trust in Him, we believe in Him, we have faith in Him, then we uh, are justified before God, we're made right with God, our sins are forgiven, uh, we will be spending eternity with Him. Uh, but if we refuse, we reject Christ, we say He's not who He said He was, then we are left in our sins to face God's wrath for our sins. So I am hard-pressed to find something more consequential than our understanding of who Jesus is. And of course, uh, at this time of year, uh, to many, Jesus is merely a sweet and harmless baby who invites uh, nice, warm feelings and happiness and, uh, you know, sort of that cuddly feeling inside. To others, he sparked a religion, you know, whether he's real or not, he sparked a religion that must be put down or warred upon. Uh, so there's all kinds of different, obviously, opinions and, and many, many more of who Jesus is out there. But as we turn this afternoon to Luke uh, chapter 1, I'll invite you to turn there. We're going to be in verses 26 to 38. Uh, we're introduced in this text, in these verses, to, to Christ. We're introduced to Jesus as Luke recounts the uh, announcement of his coming birth. So throughout much of Luke, obviously since it's a gospel, we're going to be looking at this question of who is Jesus. Right? If you'll recall, he's writing to Theophilus, who's a Gentile, so that Theophilus might have certainty regarding what he's been taught specifically about Jesus. So obviously the gospels are about Christ, and we're going to be seeing a lot of who he is. And today we're going to look at at how Luke chose to introduce Jesus to us, to his reader, to Theophilus, as he wrote, and how it is he decided to do that by relaying to us this birth announcement. So obviously, if you'll recall, um, what Luke is doing, he's relying on uh, firsthand witnesses that have passed this information down, and he's passing this along then uh, to uh, Theophilus and to, to us, that we might be sure of what we believe, and, uh, and, and all the gospel writers really are doing that, and yet uh, they all craft their gospel in slightly different ways. Um, not every gospel, in fact, all the gospels introduce us to Jesus in a slightly different way. And, uh, and, and Luke chooses to do it through telling us about this, uh, this birth announcement to Mary. And so we get the privilege then, now in our time that's left, to turn our eyes to the scriptures and turn our eyes to to Christ, to Jesus, to who he is, to see him as he really is. And this is our greatest need, to know Christ, to understand him as he is, to see what the Bible says of him and, and teaches of him. And so there's, there's a lot going on, there's a number of things going on in this passage, and we will walk through it, but I think the main thing is that this is uh, telling us who Jesus is and introducing us to him and giving us really a lot of information to digest about Jesus. And so, uh, so this is where we're going. This is, I think, the, the main thing uh, for us to see, uh, really two things about who Jesus is. Jesus is the long-awaited son of David, 
and the divine son of God. He's the long-awaited son of David, and he's the divine son of God. So let's uh, start by reading verses 26 and 27. Uh, and we're going to be looking here at, at the first part of this, uh, Jesus as the, the long-awaited son of David. So let's start by reading 26 and 27, which really serves to, to, uh, as the setting, I guess, to this, uh, to this account. So verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So we're told here it's in the sixth month. This is a reference to, um, to Elizabeth's uh, um, pregnancy. If you'll recall last week, Zechariah uh, was told by Gabriel that he, uh, his wife would be found with child and would, would have a baby. And, uh, and, and we're told for five months uh, she kind of hid herself. And, uh, and now we're told it was in the sixth month, the sixth month of Elizabeth. I think this is clear if you look down to verse 36, that it's the sixth month of her pregnancy, not the sixth month of the year. So this is at least then six months from, uh, from what we looked at last week when Gabriel uh, announced John's birth to Zechariah. Once again, as, as mentioned, Gabriel is the angel tasked with making this announcement. Uh, he goes, we're told, to Nazareth of Galilee. So note here the humble, at least earthly, origins of, of the Messiah, of Christ. Galilee was not an important place, uh, really, on anyone's radar. Uh, and yet, even the text that was read earlier for us from Isaiah 9, uh, verse 1, uh, it's mentioned there as the place where this light would come and start to turn back the darkness. So even in Isaiah 9, uh, verse 1, if you flip back there, it was read earlier, you'll see that there, Galilee of the nations, uh, that this, this child who's going to be born to us is going to be coming to Galilee of, of the nations. So, so he's, Gabriel goes to Nazareth in Galilee, uh, and he appears to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph. Okay, so the, the word for virgin here, uh, it can mean girl uh, without explicit reference necessarily to uh, her sexuality, but uh, most commonly it means virgin. Um, as in, you know, reference to her not having been with a man. And as we'll see in verse 34 in a little bit, uh, this is clearly what Lucas is getting at here. Uh, some try to make much of this, the fact that this word can mean something other than virgin, and so uh, trying to, you know, deny, get around that the Bible teaches a, a virgin conception. Uh, it's just not, uh, it, it, that, that's, that's doing extreme disservice to the text, uh, even just right here in Luke. Uh, and we'll see that more in just a moment. Uh, this virgin, her name is Mary, we're told, is betrothed to a man named uh, Joseph. So uh, <clears throat> this betrothal period uh, took place after a couple was engaged. So uh, upon their engagement, they were legally bound to one another. Um, but, but they didn't yet, uh, there's some exceptions to this, but they didn't typically uh, immediately live together or consummate their marriage. There was this time where they were betrothed, they were committed, this was a legal arrangement, uh, and yet there was this gap period from when they were actually considered you know, fully married and, and would consummate their, their marriage. 
but, but it was serious enough and, and legal that, that it required a divorce to break it. Not like you know, how we typically think of engagements today. And uh, during that time, if, if someone was to have sexual relations with somebody else while they were you know, betrothed to another, that was considered adultery. Uh, it wasn't simply fornication. It was adultery. It was like uh, cheating on a spouse. That's how it was, how it was viewed. So Mary is this virgin. She's going to marry this man named Joseph, though they're not yet living in the same home. Uh, they've not consummated their marriage. She remains, in fact, uh, a virgin. And we're also told here in these verses that Joseph was of the house of David. He, that is, he's a descendant of King David. So this is our first uh, indication here of what's coming, our first hint at what's coming, that Jesus is, in fact... Uh, no ordinary person, but is from the line of David. He's this long-awaited descendant of David. Um, and and we'll, we'll get to that more here in a moment. But Joseph's uh, genealogy, Joe, the fact that he comes from David's line, is just referenced in passing here. Uh, let's keep reading verse 28 to 30. Uh, see Gabriel's greeting. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So in verse 28, Gabriel's greeting, and he greets her with, uh, by calling her, uh, O favored one. Favored one. This means uh, one who's been shown grace by God. It's unmerited favor. It's something that's, that has not been earned. Uh, the emphasis here is, is on God's decision to be uh, gracious and show this favor to Mary. Uh, we're not told anything right here about Mary's character at all. Uh, she's been chosen by God's grace to be the mother of, of our Lord. That's the emphasis here. Um, even if you remember last week with Zechariah and uh, Elizabeth, we're told initially... Uh, in, that, in that story, that they were righteous. They were blameless before God. We're told about their, their character. And yet, that's not the case here with Mary. Uh, the emphasis is on God's grace. And so God, Gabriel announces that uh, she's favored one and that the, Lord has, uh, that the Lord is with her. And that's a special reference to the fact that he's with her in a, a special, unique way. Obviously, the Lord is everywhere, uh, but he's with Mary here in a special way. And so Mary responds by being troubled. She's perplexed. She's considering what this could mean. Does he mean by this? And Gabriel responds to this with reassurance uh, by telling her initially to not fear. Do not fear. This is common when uh, somebody, a human being, encounters a an angel, an angelic figure, to be afraid. Last week, if you'll recall, Zechariah as well uh, was afraid, and, and, the, and Gabriel had to tell him, do not be afraid. Same thing with Mary here. He says to not be afraid, and the reason being, she's not in trouble, she's not about to get it. Uh, she is about to receive grace. She's been shown favor. Again, uh, that's the word used here, for you have found favor with God, And that word favor is often translated as grace. It's the word for grace. So if we think of grace as being unmerited favor, you've perhaps heard that definition for grace. 
I think that's helpful in understanding uh, even you know why it might be translated favor in one place and grace in another. They're very, very closely related. So she's not to fear because she's received unmerited favor from God. The angel's bringing her good news. This is, a, this is good. Don't be afraid. And then in verse 31, he delivers this good news, the announcement. So read that with me. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So Mary's going to conceive, and the child is to be named Jesus. And though Luke doesn't make much of the name Jesus here, he doesn't really comment on it like Matthew does, but the name Jesus means Yahweh saves. So she's going to have a son. Uh, And then in verse 32 and 33, this is where we get uh, into this description. Gabriel's going to describe five different things that will describe Jesus, this, this, this child, this son that Mary is going to have. And so read with me 32 to 33. Jesus, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So first, Gabriel says that uh, that Jesus will be great. If you'll recall last week uh, in verse 15, um, Zechariah was also told that John was going to be great in the eyes of the Lord. He's going to be great in the eyes of the Lord. But for Jesus here, there's no qualification. It's just simply, he's going to be great. He is great. He will be great, period. Not just, you know, from God's view, not he will be great, period. There's no qualification here. Uh, many uh, have po- point out that, that these two birth announcements, there's a comparison between John and Jesus, and it's really throughout uh, the early couple chapters of Luke here. Um, there, there's John, who's the forerunner, the prophet, uh, and he's pointing to one that is greater than himself, and he himself will make that explicit. But even in these birth announcements, we see Jesus is, great, is, is greater in so many ways. John is great in the eyes of the Lord. Jesus is great, period. John will be filled with the Spirit from the womb. Jesus is going to be placed in the womb by the Spirit, conceived of the Spirit. So, just in, in, in every way, Jesus is greater. So, He will be great. The second thing He says, He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Most High is another way of saying God. That's a, you know, the Most High is used throughout the Scriptures just as a reference to God. So this Son of the Most High, it's really a synonym of the Son of God. And this title, uh, we'll come back to this because it's explained further uh, in verses 35 and 36. So we'll come back to that in just a moment. Um, But these final three descriptors in verses 32 and 33 are the things I want to just focus in on here for a few minutes. They all reveal that this Jesus, this child to be born to Mary, is the long-awaited Son of David. He says here, Jesus will be given, he says, the the throne of his father, David. That God, the Father, is going to give Jesus the throne of David. And so by telling us these words from Gabriel, Luke is showing us that what's happening is not some um, random event. It's not something that's out of sync with the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. The child that's going to be born uh, to Mary 
is in fact the son of David that they've been waiting for. The son of David that the entire scriptures have been uh, pointing towards and working towards. And so I'd like to just uh, look at a few scriptures that um, I think help bring this out. Just just look at a few uh, scriptures that show us this Davidic theme that's throughout the Old Testament. And we'll only look at, at a few. Um, but the first is 2 Samuel 7, 12. You can flip to these if, you, if you'd like or jot them down. Well, I'll move fairly quickly, but Samuel 7, 12. Uh, this is where God made a covenant with David. Uh, the Lord made a covenant with David and made a promise to him. And so here's what, what it says there. The Lord said to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, so when you're done and you die... I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then in verse 16, again, it's repeated, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So there's this promise of the a forever throne, a son to come from David who's going to reign forever. Psalm 132, 11, uh, this is another place that reiterates this promise. It says, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. A promise. He will not turn back from it. He must keep it, will keep it. And here it is. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. So even though time passed and David's sons were disappointing in so many ways, there was no glorious uh, son of David to to reign on the throne, Uh, the prophets continued to point ahead to a coming son of David. So consider Ezekiel 34, 23. Ezekiel 34, 23. The Lord says this, I will rescue my flock, they shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I the Lord will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them, I am the Lord, I have spoken." Again, later on in Amos 9, 11-12, it says this, In that day, the Lord says, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. So even after the, the house of David looked fallen and crushed, and no more to be. Uh, the Lord promises and prophesies, no, I will, I will raise up the house of David that has fallen, the booth of David. And so God had made David the king and had promised to send a son of David. And he did this a long time before Mary. And now, as Gabriel approaches Mary and says that she will have a child, he's announcing that Jesus would be this king. He would be given the throne of his father, David. He would be the ultimate fulfillment of these prophecies and receive this throne of David. 
Gabriel also says that he would reign over the house of Jacob forever. He would reign over the house of Jacob forever. This is not a temporary rule. This is not like the kings of David from David's line that came before him. Rather, his rule would be an eternal one. Something that, you know, the verses I just read, uh, you know, 2 Samuel 7, 12, where the Lord promises that your throne will be established forever. Again, Psalm 132, 11, where he gives this sure oath that their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. Okay, there's this promise of an eternal throne, and that's what Gabriel is saying Jesus will receive. He will reign forever. And it's said here uh, that he will reign over uh, the house of Jacob. This is I'm in verse 33, by the way, Luke 1. He will reign over the, the house of Jacob. This is a reference to Israel, right? Jacob, it was Jacob whose name was changed to Israel. Of course, even we sang about it earlier, Jesus, he's not just the Savior of Israel. Uh, Israel, of the Jews only, but of the whole world. He's the only Savior for Jew and Gentile alike. And Luke is going to make this very clear throughout his gospel. Uh, He's writing to Theophilus. It seems one of his concerns uh, is this Jew-Gentile relationship and even just reassuring and giving confidence to Gentiles that they're part of God's plan, uh, you know, in, in Christ, that though Jesus came to the Jews first and is himself a Jew, that his salvation uh, is for the world as well, for Gentiles as well. Uh, but here, the emphasis is on the fact that he is ruling over the house of Jacob. That is, he is the, again, the son of David. He's the king of Israel. That's the focus. Moreover, he says that of his kingdom, there will be no end. So this is obviously related to the fact that his rule will be eternal, but his kingdom, it will not end. So specifically, this kingdom, all other kingdoms of the world, they get destroyed, they wear out eventually, and yet Christ's will not. His kingdom is forever. If you recall, uh, in the book of Daniel, uh, chapter 7, Daniel had a vision of one like a son of man, where he prophesied about an eternal dominion. And, uh, and, and this is what he says in Daniel 7.13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel has much about kingdoms and, and, and several different prophecies about uh, this kingdom that is to come that will wipe out all others and be forever. And, and this is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Gabriel's telling Mary this kingdom will have no end. Again, in the text that was read earlier from Isaiah 9, Uh, 6 and following, we see in verse 7 that of the increase of his government, this child that's to be born, this, uh, this, this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And so by, by relating to us this, this story of, of Gabriel announcing the, the birth of Jesus to Mary, Luke is showing us that this was no sudden development or aberration of the Old Testament. Rather, it's the fulfillment. Jesus is nothing less than the long-awaited son of David. The seed of the woman that was ultimately promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15. So Luke doesn't explicitly connect this to Genesis 3.15. But if you think back to uh, you know the, the, the storyline of the Old Testament and how after the fall God promised there would be a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. If you remember that, and then uh, he calls Abraham and we know that this blessing, this one who will come and, and, and crush uh, the serpent and reverse the, the fall, reverse the, the curse that has uh, entered the world because of sin. This, this blessing is going to come through Abraham's line and then we see it through Jacob or Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Jacob is named Israel, and Israel is, uh, you know, made into this nation, and we see them given the law at Sinai, and then eventually this this covenant is made with David between God and David, and we know that this this the seed of the woman that's going to come and and crush the head of the serpent is coming from David's line. This Messiah will be from David's line. So what we have happening here, as Gabriel is announcing this to Mary. Is, is, is really actually what the whole Old Testament is driving towards. This is not something that, you know, is an oops that the Old Testament or the New Testament writers and the apostles have to go back and try and work it in somehow. It's, it's, what, it's what has been told from the beginning. And, and now the time has come. Gabriel is announcing this to Mary. Mary, you've received favor from God, and you are going to give birth to this child. And so if you are trusting today in Christ, this is a cause for joy. Jesus, the one you trust, is the son of David. His kingdom is in fact forever and will not end and will not be destroyed. And if you've you trust in Christ, you've been born again, then you've entered into His kingdom. That's John 3. We've entered into His kingdom, and it will not end. You'll forever be part of His kingdom. One day, He will return and rule us, rule His people in the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21 depicts that, and that will never end. <clears throat> never end. And this, this is your inheritance as a believer, as one who's trusting Christ. This is your inheritance, to be a subject in the eternal kingdom of the Son of David, where peace and where justice will reign forever. And so, take courage in that. Take courage in that, even in your trial now. Trust, remember this day is ahead. Let us put off vanity, vain earthly amusements, and let's keep our eyes focused on this one. Let's do our best to focus on this great King, 
to know him more. And as you look out and you see the kingdoms of this earth, including our own, tottering and and raging against the Lord, what's going to happen? Don't be afraid. The kingdom that you belong to first and foremost is an eternal one. Don't be easily rattled by what you hear, by what's going to happen. The kingdom you belong to is forever. We live in this world, absolutely, but we are, this is not our home. Christ's kingdom will be forever. Christ will return and he will judge and destroy the kingdoms of the earth. And his rule will be forever. So lift up your head. This is, this is cause for, for joy. Though it's difficult now, most certainly, though we, we struggle now with many fears, many concerns, this is why we look back to Christ and to who He is. This is what we're seeing right here and now. He's the son of David whose throne will be forever. And if you're not a believer or you're uncertain of this, The Bible's message to you is that Christ is the great king whom all are to bow to. All of this stuff is going to wear out. It's all going to crumble at some point. And and, and you will stand before the Lord God in your sin. But of course, in sending Christ, sending Jesus, God has made a way for you to be forgiven, to be made right with Him. He's made a way for you to enter Christ's kingdom by sending Christ to die, to rise again from the dead, so that all who trust in Him can be forgiven. And so this is a, this is a moment to repent, and to trust Christ, to place your faith in Him. He is the one whom all history points toward, certainly all of the Old Testament, all of the Scriptures, to Christ the son of David. He's the long-awaited son of David who will rule forever. Number two, secondly, Jesus, not only is he that, but he is the divine son of God. So after this announcement of, of that, that to Mary that she's going to have this child, his name's Jesus, and this uh, five-fold description of who he is, Mary has a question. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? If you have an ESV Bible, you'll see a footnote there that tells you that this could be translated as, um, how will this be, since I do not know a man. Okay, that's that's what's actually written. That's, you know, literal, if you will, of the Greek, um, that that I do not know a man. And, And knowing a man, it's a euphemism. It's a euphemism for sexual relations. And so, uh, Virgin is is very appropriate way to translate this. And and that's certainly the sense of it. That's the meaning of it here, very clearly. So again, this this is really clear that that what Luke is saying is that Mary is a virgin. She has not been with a man. She doesn't know a man. She's saying it right now here for us. So her question, you know, how can this be? So obviously another thing her question reveals to us is that she's expecting some sort of immediate fulfillment. 
if she just expected one day she would have a baby, then, then you know, she wouldn't raise this question because she knows she's betrothed. She's eventually going to get married. It would be natural to have a child. She's still young at this point. That would make sense. But she's obviously expecting something more. She's expecting something immediate. And, and I, I, have, I have not known a man. How can this be? So Gabriel answers in verse 35. And in so doing, he also clarifies a little of, of who Jesus is. So he clarifies a little bit of his announcement. Um, so let's read verse 35. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So in the first half of this verse, we see that the Holy Spirit would come upon Mary, and as a result of this display of the power of God overshadowing her, she would be pregnant. We're not given, you know, more details about how exactly that this works, uh, but we're left to contemplate the power of God. This is clearly describing a miracle in which Mary would supernaturally become pregnant apart from normal means. And the Holy Spirit is described here as the power of God behind this miracle. Of course, many today would see this, you know, what, what we're looking at here, a virgin conception, as simply ridiculous. But ultimately, it comes down to one's, I think, presuppositions. And whether or not you deny that miracles can take place. Uh, if you're committed to naturalism, that is nothing but, uh, you know, there's nothing but natural forces at work in the world, uh, then this will be dismissed. Um, but I would submit to you that if you believe that God spoke everything into being, you know, the entire universe into being, he spoke creation into being, then this isn't really uh, that much harder to imagine that God could actually have the power to do this. Uh, it's certainly not normal. Okay, yeah, you know, so, so what, well, people will deny it because, well, that's not how things work. Yes, granted, agreed, that's not how things normally work. That's actually part of the point of this, is that this is not normal. This is not how things ordinarily work. Jesus is not a normal child. He's not a normal person like the rest of us. And this is evidenced in the uniqueness of his conception and his birth. He's born of a woman, yes, but he is true God. Because he's conceived in this manner, Gabriel says, he will therefore be called holy, the Son of God. This title, Son of God, uh, it does not necessarily mean, in and of itself, uh, divinity. Um, so again, sometimes you will hear this said that, oh, well, you know, Son of God doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus is divine. Um, well, well, this is sort of true. Uh, for example, sons of God is sometimes used in the Bible to refer to angelic beings. So in Job chapter 1, for example, verse 6, in Deuteronomy 32.8, the sons of God seems to be uh, a reference to mankind in, in general. 
In Exodus 4, God calls Israel his son, his firstborn son. David is also called a son. So this idea of son of God, it's not necessarily meaning uh, that, that one is divine. But here, Jesus is called holy, and he's called the son of God because he's conceived by the power of God. That's, what, that's the language we have here. And so it's an appropriate title for Jesus because he is eternally the Son of God. And he was not born in a normal manner, but rather was placed in the womb by the Holy Spirit. So he will be, therefore, rightly and appropriately and properly called the Son of God. That's who he is and always has been, and his birth is uh, consistent with this. So this is, a, if, we, if we think of the Son of God language and, and God making Israel a son and David his son, it's, it's a heightening of the Son of God language that's used throughout Scripture. And, and as applied to Jesus, it is a reference to his deity. And, and we see that Luke understands it this way very clearly uh, towards the end of the book in Luke 22.70. You can flip there if you want. But when, when Luke is telling us about the trial of Jesus before he's crucified, we see this. So the, the, Jesus has, has declared essentially already that he's the Son of Man, uh, but then those who are trying him say, so they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. And so, the Son of God title, you know, are you the Son of God then? And he doesn't deny it. And they say, aha, what more evidence do we need? This is enough for us to crucify him because they think it's blasphemous. Because they understand that as Jesus is taking this title, that it is a claim to being divine. It's a, he's the divine Son of God. And so that's enough for them, in their eyes, to want to put him to death. And so Jesus is the divine Son of God. And the announcement of his birth and the miraculous way he's conceived shows us this. He is God incarnate. The wonder of the incarnation is that the, the one who was eternally the Son of God came and took on human flesh. He received a human nature in addition to his divine nature. Uh, this is sometimes referred to by theologians as the hypostatic union. Uh, it's the union of two natures, divine, human, in one person, namely the Son of God, Jesus. And I just want to read to you from how, because I think it's well-written and helpful and has stood the test of time, how uh, the London Baptist Confession of 1689 uh, says it. It says this, The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with Him who made the world, who upholds and governs all things that He made, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, 
with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. And then listen to the language of Luke here. Being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures, so that two whole, perfect and distinct natures, divine nature, human nature, were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. So that's what's happening. It's a bit of a mouthful, but that's what's happening in Luke, that the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, is coming to earth as a man. He's, 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 he's fully God, very God, you should say, uh, and he's placed in the womb of a woman. He receives a human nature. He's very man. He's, he's truly a man, as the confession said that I just read. Uh, he took all the essential properties of humanity upon himself, and yet there's this mysterious element to which we can't completely grasp that he takes these two natures upon himself as one person. Gabriel goes on in verse 36 to give a sign. So let's read that together. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So as evidence that God can do the miraculous, Gabriel tells Mary that her old, barren relative, Elizabeth, is in her sixth month of pregnancy. So this is something that is verifiable. You could go and you can see clearly that she is in her sixth month of pregnancy. And in fact, next week we'll see that's precisely what Mary did. She went to visit Elizabeth. And the, fa the fact that Elizabeth, who was past childbearing age and had never had a child, was suddenly now with child, was evidence, was, was to be proof that with God, nothing is impossible. There's a tendency to think that because this is describing something that happened a couple thousand years ago, people just were gullible and, and just everybody was just, you know, ready to believe anything that was told. And so, you know, uh, the early Christians and, and others were just gullible. And even if, you know, Luke really wrote this and people really claimed to be, you know, eyewitnesses and whatnot, uh, well, everybody was just sort of ready to believe these kinds of things because uh, they were primitive. But that's not true. That's not true. If you remember in Acts 17, uh, Paul is, is uh, ripped and made fun of and mocked and scorned for preaching about a resurrection. Why? Because that's not normal. People don't rise from the grave. This is never, these kinds of things have never been just normal. Uh, they're miraculous. And so understanding this, seeing that this clearly is not a normal thing, Gabriel, he gives her a sign to show that even if this sounds impossible, nothing is impossible with God. Evidence, Elizabeth. 
So if God says he'll do something, he'll do it, however fantastic it might seem to us. And Mary's response is, as it should be, and yet still instructive and impressive, incredibly, she declares herself the servant or slave of God and submits to the word that the angel has brought. Let it be to me according to your word, she says. Jesus is no ordinary king. He is a son of David, but he's the greater David. He's no mere earthly human ruler. He's the son of God. And so if you're refusing to bend your will to him, you refuse to believe in him, you refuse to trust him, consider who it is that you're refusing. This is no pitiful child. This is no sappy story. It's the birth of the great king. And so don't underestimate Jesus. Make no mistake about the Bible's portrayal of, of Christ. Even here, as we talk about his birth, and in so many depictions of it look sad and look really just unimpressive, and he looks weak. He's not weak. This is the birth of the Messiah. He comes in humble form, but he's nothing less than the King of David and the divine Son of God. And once again, if you are trusting him, this ought to give you hope. This ought to bring you encouragement. The Son of David, your King, is the Son of God. He's no ordinary king. He's able to save you and do what he says. He will keep his word. So take courage in this. Your king is God. And so when he invites all who are weary to him to find rest, he will give it. He will bring it. And even though now might continue on to be a struggle, eternal rest does await in his eternal, forever, everlasting kingdom. And so trust Him. Does that seem impossible? Nothing is impossible with God. He can save even you. Jesus is not born in a normal way. He's great. He's much greater than any other who was. Any other person born of a woman. He's worthy of our praise. He is divine. He is God He's worthy of our humble submission. He's worthy of your humble submission. As Mary declared herself a slave of God, may it be to be according to your word. May we do the same as we consider Christ. Submitting to whatever it is he, that comes our way. Trusting the Lord to see us through it. Mary had a difficult road ahead. And yet declared, may it be to me according to your word. She declares her faith, her trust in God, for whom nothing is impossible. No, no one sermon will exhaust or communicate the riches of, of who Christ is. But Luke has introduced us to Jesus uh, in these verses. And he is nothing less than the long-awaited son of David, who receives his throne, who will rule forever, and he is the divine Son of God who was born of a woman.
He is the one you need. He's the one you need now. He's the one you need today. He's the one you need into eternity. And so turn your eyes to him. Look to him today. May your confidence in him and your love for him grow. Even as you consider the announcement of Jesus' birth to Mary. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you and we declare and we praise you that you, that with you nothing is impossible. That when you declare something to be, it is. That when you say you will do something, you will do it. And however difficult that seems, it is true. And God, we, by faith, trust that when you say you will save us by trusting in Christ, that's our only hope, Lord. That's our only hope. God, I pray that we would take courage in whatever it is that we are facing individually and and corporately as a church, that we would turn our eyes to Jesus and see in Jesus the Son of David who will reign forever and the divine Son of God. And I pray that we would be encouraged by this, that we would be built up in this truth, and that we would praise you for this. And we do give you praise now. We thank you that you've shown favor to to not only Mary, but to all who would trust in Christ, including us, that you would send forth your Son to be born of Mary. And so we praise you, we thank you, I pray you'd encourage our hearts, make us more like Christ, help us to love Christ more, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.